Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Today, 30 Minutes continues with a panel discussion entitled Art, Resistance, and Survival from the 2018 Tucson Festival of Books held at the Social and Behavioral Sciences Tent. Playwright and performance artist Virginia Vicki Grice joined poet Vicki Vertis for a dynamic discussion on resistance and survival, both on the personal, day-to-day level, and in a broader sense as individuals situated within systems and cultures of oppression. Moderated by UA Assistant Professor of Mexican-American Studies, Michelle Tellez. This session was sponsored by the UA Institute for LGBT Studies. This is part two of a two-part series. Hello, welcome. How are you all doing? It's been a beautiful afternoon, yes? So my name is Michelle Tellez. I'm a professor in the Department of Mexican-American Studies. And it is a huge honor for me to be on the stage with these two brilliant thinkers, writers, and human beings. We're going to just have a simple conversation today uh, as a way to help us think through their palabras, their words, their thoughts, their experiences, as it relates to the title of this conversation. So today we have Vicky Grice, um, the author of Your Healing is Killing Me. And then we have also Vicky Vertiz here, um, author of Palm Frond with its throat <laughs> cut. Nice, Such a chola title. Like. So uh, they're both uh, award-winning authors and thinkers, and so it is really an honor to, to sit with them today. I'm thinking about um, a quote by Huey, Huey Newton when he says, you know, all I really wanted to do was sit around and write poetry, write and read poetry, right? But then the conditions of his life and the conditions of his brothers and sisters compelled him right, to, to join the Black Panthers and to, to work in that way, right? And so I often think about that because at the end of the day, you know, ultimately, what, what do we really want, right? And how do we dream, you know? And so I think that's part of the conversation that you're all thinking about, too. And one of Vicky Geis's uh, quotes in her book, she says, uh, writing liberates us from confinement. And so I, it's my attempt, my attempt to liberate myself. There you go. And so th- let's, let's talk about that, you know? Um, how, in what ways do you attempt to liberate yourselves from, from confinement through your writing? Yeah, I love I love that quote. That all I wanted to do. I th- I think that you know when I mentioned that, I feel that I and I do feel like this is a place of extreme privilege. I feel like I live in a place of extreme privilege, in the sense that I have uh, worked to create. I think there was a moment. I, I think this is it. There was a moment in which I looked at my working class father, who was an airplane mechanic, and I was a middle school teacher on the south side of San Antonio and I said I'm going to give up my career to be an artist and um, this makes me emotional and it was the one of the first times that my father wasn't about the dream when he was like you're 30 years old and you're going to give up a career to be an artist and do you know what that means and you're going to give up a career to be an artist and you're going to go to an art school in California that is incredibly expensive. So not only are you gonna give up a career to be an artist, but you're gonna to go to school and leave with an incredible amount of debt. And then what are you going to do? You know, and, and do you know how many people make it as artists? And, and do you wanna do television? I don't wanna do television. That's the only place you're gonna get money. You know, and you know how many people make it. You know, so those moments when I, and you know, as a 30 year old woman saying that I was gonna give up a career was a very difficult thing for my father to understand. And one of the things that he told me that I really carried with me 
when he finally was kind of at the resolve, like regardless of what I say, this is the thing that she's going to do, is he said, you know, Virginia, I never had big dreams, which I don't necessarily think was true, but this is the thing that he said. I never had big dreams because people with big dreams end up with big disappointments. And that was um, a line that I used actually in my first play that I wrote, Blue. It was a line of one of the characters. I never had big dreams because people that end up have big dreams and with big disappointments. And I think that that was the moment that I decided that I was going to live in dreams. And, and I think that it's a place of incredible privilege. I think that I've been very deliberate about it. I think it's made my life a lot harder for a lot of reasons. But I feel like it was the moment in which I realized that, and I told my father this, this was, you have actually given me everything that at 30 years old I can make this decision. That I have a career that I could come back to if this doesn't work out, you know? I, there's all sorts of decisions that I'm capable of making because of what you've put down in front of me, right? And so I feel like for me, that has then put a different type of, um, I don't think burden's the right word, but a different type of responsibility on my shoulders where then I have to write the thing that's unmediated. Then I have to write the thing that for me is my truth. Um, I have to write the thing that um, I'm scared of. And, I, and, and that's just the place where I have to live, you know? Um, and so for me, and so the reason why I say that it's my attempt to liberate myself con from confinement is because I don't, I don't know, I don't know if it, if it does that, which doesn't mean that I don't continue doing it. Because I feel like there's, uh, there's just social forces, there's the world. But it is, it is the place, for me, as an artist, the place that I feel most free is on the stage when I'm performing. It is that moment in which I, f I, I feel free. I mean, even, even not writing, but on the, when I'm actually in the place, of, which is different than this and talking, this actually makes me very nervous. But the place where I can be inside of a text, the text is inside of me and I get to sort of do that thing is the place where I feel like this is, this is the offering that I have to give right now. Um, so Juan Felipe Herrera, who's our poet laureate last, the last few years, uh, got to study with him and he, um, if you've ever been around him, he's like in the flow all the time. The, the, he's not thinking. Right, which is like, uh, it makes me think of meditation, right? How um, to return to the breath, like there's freedom in, in, the, in having a space between your thoughts and your, your action or reaction, right? And that that's freedom, right? That there, that there is, an, that awareness is freedom. And so, and so he's, he practices parts of Buddhism too. So I've always, since I've met him, I've tried to, in those spaces where I try not to think as much as possible, especially when trying to write and the poetry lends itself more to that practice because you can just be you know write down whatever's coming and the whatever gate is a little open or a little ajar maybe not fully open and then just kind of be in that flow for a little bit but for a lot of us who grew up with a lot of responsibility it's hard to get to that place so you have to really I have to trick myself into that and like go dancing and like or just like wash the dish and try not to think or like pet my dog or just not you know be in um my responsible mode which has gotten me through my life and has gotten me a lot of really beautiful things and so you know i mean what is it that there is an end to suffering and so trying to write towards that so i have nothing more to say but i really 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 want, <laughs> want you all to respond to these brilliant thinkers so uh, we have a mic that will be uh, available for someone who might need it and um 
Yeah, we op- we're could, gonna open up the conversation. I wanna say one more thing about freedom too, is that I feel like, and it is a practice that I am committed to, so that I feel that at this moment, if I wanna learn about freedom, the place to actually learn about that for me at this moment is, is in our jails. Um, it are in places of unfreedom. And I feel like it's been part of why, like I've, I've shifted my practice a little bit. So a lot of that, the work that I'm doing is, um, is in prisons because there's something that um, I work with women. There's something that the women have to teach us about freedom that are incarcerated. Yeah, so my cousin, one of my, uh, this wonderful half cousin I have um, was in a high security state prison in Northern California in solitary for 12 years, but then also, again, and then I've been in, so when he was in solitary and has been in jail since, I think, for the last 22 years, we've both had equal educations. He knows things that no one else knows otherwise, right? So he knows who Chiang Kai-shek is, and I didn't know who that was until I started dating someone who's Taiwanese. So my cousin has had his reading, that's his reading life, has been jail, right? And my reading life has been school. And in, I'm, in some ways, I'm glad he was there because he's still alive. Uh, he might not have been otherwise, right? As dangerous as that place is, like he used all his home knowledge to survive, right? Um, and so we're hoping he'll get out soon, but it's just like incredibly brilliant, right? So there's just, there's always evidence of power and love and knowledge in places where you are not looking. Before I say anything, um, I just want to thank that the Hana Adam people on whose land we're gathered today as the caretakers of this land. Yes, thank you. Um, and my question is, I'm wondering if you could kind of speak to how you negotiate, like when you're considering um, who would be feeling your work and reading your work. Um, in terms of not compromising the integrity of like the truth of the experiences that you're um, like showing and representing and kind of fighting with and speaking to audiences who are like those orchestrating the violence that like we're fighting against, you know, and that if you could just speak to that, please. I'm going to keep quoting Fred. And I, by the way, uh, thank you for reminding us where we are and what land we are on. Thank you. So I'm going to keep quoting Fred. Vicky Vertis is referring to Fred Moten, a professor of English at the University of California, Riverside, where he teaches courses and conducts research in black studies, performance studies, poetics, and literary theory. We would, um, in one of the, the seminars we had with him, uh, students, we would um, get into these arguments about appropriation of black culture and art, and, and Fred would be like, there is good stuff in there. And that's why people keep coming back to it. What I understand that he's trying to tell me about blackness is that, is that it is nothingness and therefore everything and therefore not takeable and therefore not sellable and that even in the hold of the slave ships there was joy and bef- beyond suffering there is joy and there are good things in there. That doesn't mean that I don't hate that one PBS guy who, who makes Mexican food and has restaurants. Like, I hate his guts. right? But And I get what Fred's trying to say. I'm like, yeah, you're right. There's good stuff in there and people need to hear it and need to see it and feel it because as you know, you learn the stanky leg that move has already changed so blackness is constantly moving and it's constantly changing and you cannot be taken or held right so so both things are true right so in terms of where my work is presented who i'm writing it for 
I'm writing it for you, I'm writing it for Vicky, I'm writing it for Michelle, and for people who see themselves in it, right? So it's a very working class, queer, resourceful lens that's actively working against violence. And, and, and to be clear, we repeat those gestures of violence with one another all the time. You're not Chicano enough, you're not queer enough. All, we repeat those gestures all of the time. So I also take, you know, respons- I want us to take responsibility and instead of just, you know, pointing fingers out to like, oh, my book isn't for white people, but it's like, it's for who sees themselves in it. And if there's something that has sparked there to understand themselves differently and how they act in the world, then that's great, right? And also, what am I responsible in terms of enacting this violence and maybe other ways, like economic violence or, um, right? So now I have enough money to buy a house, but if I buy a house where I grew up, the, it's contributing to home prices that no one else can afford except for other people who are middle class or upper middle class with college educations who frequently don't look like me. So, but I'm part of that, right? So you have to just hold both things together. I'm not, I'm not sure if this answers the question. Um, and maybe I don't understand it completely. And so it might, it might be that, that the question, I might need to hear the question again. But um, when I was in 11th grade, there were two books that I read that I really do feel sort of changed the course of my life. Faulkner's Sound and the Fury, and James Baldwin's uh, Giovanni's Room. Not, not knowing that I would be an artist, not having any desire to, to be a writer, not, that, none of that was in what I knew at that moment. But it really was a moment where I distinctly remember falling in love with words, like falling in love with literature. And two very different books, and they were two books that... Um, made me feel less lonely in the world um, by two authors that looked nothing like me and had experiences nothing like my own, but made me feel less lonely. There was something in reading them that I, I felt, yeah, I just, I, 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 that's the right word, acompañada, I, I felt like I, I wasn't alone. Um, and I felt alone a lot growing up. Uh, I have sisters that are 10 and 11 years older than me, and so I, I felt alone a lot growing up. And, and, the, and that was a moment, and I, and I would sleep with those books. You know, I was obsessed with those two texts. And so when I write, and this is a, a funny thing to say as a theater artist especially, that when I write, I actually don't think about audience uh, at all. It might be part of the no thinking that you're talking about. Um, I don't think about audiences at all. Uh, I... I really do write the thing that I have to write at that moment. Um, and I often say I'm a very uncreative writer because even when I write fiction, I, it's almost always, you, yeah. if you know me, you know where the kernel is for that thing. Um, I, and and not, not all writers are like that, but that is true of, of myself, that uh, everything I write comes from something that's in my real life. And so it's oftentimes the thing that I'm working through at the moment. I do think that I begin to think about audiences when I think about who I want to speak to. And, and so I think that that's the place where I begin to, like who I actually want to be in conversation with, I think is when I begin to think about audiences. I would say me too, I, I don't. That just, you just say what you have to say and then. And then a press asks you, who is, this, who is your audience? And I was like, working class people, first generation people. I got really broad because I was like, there's so many things in here that could be useful. If writing is useful, then it's already done way more than, you know, well, that's what's done what I want it to do. You are listening to remarks made at the 2018 Tucson Festival of Books from a panel entitled Art, 
Resistance and Survival on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. More questions? So when talking about um, healing and trauma, how do you navigate listening and taking on other people's stories while simultaneously like dealing with your own? If you are your child, your parents' confidant, right? Like that's like, and they don't know what therapy is. Like that's, <laughs> it's like a lifetime of practice of like, okay, that's yours. That's not mine, but it's kind of ours, right? So that actually turns up a lot in my writing. Um, if we want to talk about it, like technically, we could. I can tell you literally like how I deal with it, like physically and like in therapy <laughs> I have understood this about myself and and this other stuff because those things those wounds don't go away or those primary shapers so there's just another facet of like this is my mom telling me stories I don't want to hear again where am I in that circle this time or in that cycle you know of that difficulty of not being able to help her or or it's not being my job to help her right so that's kind of where I am now I'm like it wasn't my job to fix things for people because people can fix things for themselves like Going back to like, oh, art is helping other people. Like, is it? Um, <laughs> or like, yeah, it can. It completely can because it made us acompañadas. It made me see myself like in Chiri Moraga's writing or, in, um, you know, Sandra Cisneros work. And, and now in people who are, um, I feel like you were saying this earlier, folks in the um, who are trans who are saying like, and there's so much more beyond your little gender binaries. Like, what, what else is there? And I'm like, oh, that's right. So there is always a new silence and a new understanding to face, right? So... Technically, that's how I deal with it. I'm like, what is actually mine and what is shared? And then what ends up happening in my writing is that um, some, one of my colleagues at Riverside described my writing as very democratic. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, there's the you and then there's the me and then there's the us. And it keeps happening in my writing in a way that I wasn't paying attention to. And it's because I'm always trying to write myself back into my community for all these different reasons, right? Like... I, you know, there are not a lot of people who are cholas and not a lot of people who are scholars and everybody else is just pretty much normal. And so I, I, I spent my life writing myself away from them and I'm trying to write myself back in and, I, and trying to have us all be in that space together. So it's like there's some things we share and some things we don't and you get help with the stuff that you can't do alone, right? So Originally, this panel was going to center around healing. That was the original conversation. And I actually asked that we not center the panel. It was around trauma and healing. And I asked that we not have the panel focus on trauma and healing. And uh, and it was like my original reaction. And so then I tried to figure out what that was about. And I think it is because I do, I, I certainly believe that literature has the potential to heal. Um, that there's something healing about it. There's something, but I but I don't feel like that is my project when I begin writing. I don't think of myself as a healer. And and again, that doesn't mean that literature doesn't have that power, but um, I don't think that that's my work. Um, I think my work is to tell my story. Um, And then my responsibility in terms of the us is to create spaces um, where, where, where others tell their stories. Um, and so I, I don't know, and it may, it may be the, it may be the coldness of my China mother. Um, I, I, I don't know if, I, I don't know if I carry other people's stories in, in the way in which you talk about. Um, I think about it in terms of prisons too. Like the first time that I worked in a, a juvenile correction system, first time I went into juvie, I walked in and immediately my whole body shifted, right? And I was about to cry and 
I remember Raul Salinas, who's a poet, came up behind me and he said, sister, you, you, you better keep your tears for the bar afterwards because this moment is not about you. And it was true that what, that moment was not about me. And I feel like that's a difficult thing right now. I feel like people think that every moment is about them and every moment is about their trauma and everybody is about their hurt every moment. And, and I think that um, parceling out what, what is the, when is this about me and when is this not about me, I think that those things are important. Um, I'm also in a place where, and I don't mean this in the sense of we can go to a writing residency and forget about the trauma. It doesn't go, I, I really believe this, it never goes away. And so I think that I'm in a place uh, as a writer, as an artist, where I really also want to talk about this place of joy. And, and I don't think that it's one instead of the other. I've heard people say, I don't want to hear this narrative, I want to hear this narrative. And it's just like, well, it's great that you just want to hear this narrative, but I'm also living both of those things at the same time. And so I think that as an artist, that's been something that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, one of the questions that repeats in my book is, do you like your job? If so, remember that when you sit down to write. And I feel like that's been something that I've been really, when I talk about this sort of deliberate life that I've constructed for myself, one of the things that I haven't always constructed is, is joy. And, and being happy in the place that I'm at. And I don't think happy is always and has to, you know, we always have to be happy. But I do feel like I do like this job. I do. Even when, even when it's hard. And, and it's really hard. It's a very hard job to have. So even when it's hard, it is a job that I chose. It's not a job that I'm forced to do. And I do like it. And so if I do, then how do I find joy in it? And I think that that's what I've been thinking about a lot lately. Yes. Sure, two more. Also happy to talk about MFA programs and getting money from schools. That's like my specialty. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been um, really amazing and like moving to hear you speak on all these topics. Um, I'm actually in the MFA program here on campus. Um, and the specter of the unpaid <laughs> summer is coming up. And uh, our stipends suck. <laughs> Just going to be upfront about it. Yeah. You mentioned MFAs and money. And... Um, you know, it's a fully funded program here, but it's still a struggle um, for people who aren't, like, taking out loans or independently wealthy. And um, I wanted to know, like, because I'm looking at the summer, like, oh, do I wash dishes again? Do I take another, like, low pay, like, a minimum wage job, which is what I'd been doing prior to coming here? Um, or do I try to, like, get the grant, which is another kind of labor, right, where you're, like, doing all this work for money that just might never come. So it's not, like, a a perfectly you know put together question but I guess I was wondering like what your thoughts are or your experiences are with like trying to get that money because like I feel like being raised by people who work for their money um, like at a job is really different from you know being raised by people who are you know like in the academy or something I remember my first year in my MFA program my dean told me you know when you're done with this you can get a job at Kinko's and when you get a job at Kinko's you can make copies and that that would be awesome that's like the best job to have and I said you clearly don't have a Mexican Chinese Mexican immigrant mother um, you know I'm not I can't you know no not after the amount of money that I spend for me. And again, like I think we all make decisions about how we want to live our lives. I made a lot of decisions that were about work. And for me, one of the decisions I made is during my MFA program, because I'm a theater artist, I said, I'm going to leave. We had to write six plays. I said, I'm going to leave with one play. That's going to make me a living. And I did. And, and it, to the point where it annoyed 
other professors that I kept bringing the same play again, again, and again, and again. And they were like, did she not write the other five plays? But I knew that I was going to have one play that was going to help me that first year. And it did. It, it gave me two years of work, actually. And so I left with the one play. Um, I left with an incredible amount of debt. It's a, it's a thing that I, I regret and I don't regret. Um, as a working class Chicana, I wanted to go to the best art school that I could possibly go in theater, and I did. Um, I left with all that debt. I consider it um, an artist grant. Um, maybe somebody's going to come after me someday soon, but they haven't yet, right? So I'm on an income-based referment program, uh, which it took me a long time to even learn about income-based referment programs because of the fact that I was so ashamed of my debt originally because nobody in my family had that type of debt. And so once I named it and said it, then I was able to kind of figure out how to, how to handle it. So it's not a thing that actually stresses me out every day. Um, I made a couple of decisions about how I was going to live my life. And so for me, I made myself um, unattached to things. Literally, I could put everything in my car at the time. And the idea was that because I could do that, I made myself mobile to work in different places. So anytime opportunities came for work, I was able to work. So if somebody called me and said, can you come to Los Angeles when I was living in Minneapolis for $250 to write a piece for a, uh, a dance theater piece I'm choreographing, I was able to get on a plane and go to Los Angeles. That's the way that I set up my life. I don't have children. And that is both because of my art. I'm not saying that you can't make art and have children, but it's a choice that I made was not to have children, um, both because of my art and also because of my own personal relationships to children. I'm not attached to things. I made myself very mobile. But as I get older, that's changing. So now it's you know 12 years of making my life as a professional artist. That is what I do. I, I, that is how I make a living. And in this next turn of my life, there's going to be a shift where I'm no longer asking myself the question, how do I make a living off of my art, but how I make a living that's going to support my art. Because I'm not capable of getting on a plane for $250 anymore. You know, I'm not, <laughs> I don't know if I was capable when I was 31, but, any, but you, know, I, you know, that's not the way that I want to live anymore. The way that I want to live is different. And I remember when I came home my first semester of college and I told my father, you know, this is really hard because I was going to school in Valencia and I was teaching in East LA and I had a job on campus and CalArts was terrible. I went to CalArts. CalArts was terrible about helping out students. You know, people that go to CalArts have their names on their families' names on buildings, you know, and so there was no, there was very little resources for us. And I came home and I told my father, this is really hard. And he said, you don't think that it was hard for me to raise a family. And, and I said, well, what do I do? And he's like, you get another job, you know? And he said, do you think I enjoyed working overtime? The, many, the times that I worked overtime was so that you would go to your undergrad without any debt, that you would leave your undergrad without any debt. And that was a moment for me that I realized, like, there was a strength in my father's generation that, that, that I just had to, I mean, I had to, I had to call it forth, you know, um, and, and be very clear about what it is that I wanted and what I was prepared to sacrifice for the thing that I wanted, and what I wasn't prepared to sacrifice. So that, that's changing for me now. What I'm prepared to sacrifice isn't the same thing anymore. So there's, there's so many different answers to this question, right? There's the, I personally have a toolkit in organizing social justice work, so I will always have a job. I, I have public policy life before this, and some, there will always be work in that, um, right? So... Maybe that was my subconscious way of always knowing I would have income, 
right? So I went to policy school and I got a fellowship for that because I was at a really expensive, a very resource-rich college that where I was mentored by older students who said, apply for this fellowship, it'll pay for your grad school. And then many years later, they paid my off my undergraduate loans, which like still makes me cry to this day. I'm like, oh my God. So your peers are an incredible resource, right? So they will probably know where the money is if you don't yet know. And I'm surprised they haven't told you because you should have, somebody should have told you already. So there's that, there's like the concept of like, there's what you need in the world is always out there. And some schools have it and some schools don't, right? And then there's the hustle, right? Of like, well, you just piece it together and you make it work. You have a lot of skills, I'm sure. One thing I would say is like, what other departments can you go to and get squeeze some money from, right? Uh, maybe there's some fellowship. I don't know, there's a teacher. Can you write a letter to the dean and propose that you're going to go to this residency and you're going to represent, or this conference, you're going to represent the school and you're going to bring, like there's so many ways to go and find money. But if people don't tell you, it's going to be hard to find. And the people who already have the money just assume that everybody knows where it is. But the resources are out there. And also, you, you sometimes you just have to get several jobs. Uh, yes. And, uh, and I was trying to remember what the hell I did in my in-between um, semesters. And I there was a fellowship uh, to teach on campus through the... It's a Gluck fellowship. And it was for... It's, uh, not all schools have it. And it paid a ton of money for just like a couple of weeks. And so, you know... There's, there's that. So we can talk more later. I have more tips. <laughs> if I could say one thing quickly, I think that the trick for this work is that you work it and don't let it work you. Right. And so even like the, you know, when you talk about the unpaid labor of doing grants, anytime I sit down to do a grant, what I am doing is not applying for that grant. What I am doing is clarifying my vision yeah. for what it is that I want to do. Because there's 600 other people applying for that same grant, and so if if I see it in the in, if I see it in terms of how they want me to see it, I think it'll it'll make me a little bit crazy. And so I think the trick is to work it and not let it work you. We are out of time. Yay! Thank you, everyone. We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to a panel discussion entitled Art. Resistance and Survival from the 2018 Tucson Festival of Books held at the Social and Behavioral Sciences Tent. Playwright and performance artist Virginia Vicki Grice and poet Vicki Vertice spoke about resistance and survival, both on the personal day-to-day level and in a broader sense as individuals situated within systems and cultures of oppression. Moderated by UA Assistant Professor of Mexican-American Studies, Michelle Tellez, this session was sponsored by the UA Institute for LGBT Studies. This was part two of a two-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. You can find this and all recent episodes on the 30 Minutes program page on kxci.org.